1: Trigger warning for our listeners. This Lake Waco series contains gruesome depictions of murder and mentions of sexual assault. I advise proceeding with caution. I want you to understand I speak the truth when I say I didn't kill your kids. I have not killed anyone. These were the last words of the alleged murderer before the executioners filled his chamber with toxic chemicals and his heart stopped beating. We rewind back to a quiet Monday afternoon in 1982. Eighteen-year-old Kenneth Franks stood at his window, waiting for his friends to arrive. Jill had just called to tell him she'd be in the area to pick up her paycheck from work, so she'd be free to hang out for a few hours. Her friend, Raylene Rice, would be with her, and they could all go down to Coney Park with a few burgers and watch the sunset. Kenneth, of course, had been there countless times himself, amidst the peaceful waters of Lake Waco. Coney was one among many parks that rebellious teenagers loved to frequent. With a busy boat dock on one side and a quiet, secluded place on the other, Offering breathtaking views of the lake In the neighboring Spiegelville Park It's no surprise Kenneth loved visiting the place On his motorcycle And he was excited to take his friends there too The girls arrived in an orange pinto And parked in the driveway Of his townhouse Kenneth After grabbing a few dollars Out of the change drawer And getting a stern warning from his father To return before midnight Ran outside to greet them Kenneth hadn't seen Jill Montgomery in a very long time, and he wouldn't have her for long that night either. Her family had moved to Waxahachie, and she'd have to make the long drive back. He missed her terribly, but decided to cherish what little time they had. Maybe he was a little less excited about Raylene Rice going with them, but it wouldn't be such a problem. A gorgeous sunset at Lake Waco would melt away what distance had formed between the two. Little did Kenneth know this would be the very last time he would enjoy her company. two thirty AM Kenneth's father, Richard Franks, stirs awake and rolls over to check the clock. He tries to listen for any signal, but his son might have returned. The bed creaking under his weight as he tosses and turns, Anything. It was nothing but eerie silence, and Richard couldn't be angrier. This was the part he hated about parenting the disciplining. In the end, neither of them was happy, and they'd go days without talking. Richard got up from bed and went to check Kenneth's room. Neat and empty as ever, with a pair of folded pajamas on the bed. He decided to wait up for him and greet him at his arrival, confronting him about his tardiness and maybe giving him a little lecture on mutual respect. So he sat in the living room, switched on the TV, and contended with whatever was playing at that hour. Time went by. It was now 4 a.m. There was a feeling of uneasiness and dread at the pit of Richard's stomach, He couldn't sit any longer. He had to move. Do something. Get out. As a veil of darkness shrouded the city, Richard Franks made his way to Coney Park. His senses on high alert. Slowly but carefully, he scanned the area near the boat dock before heading to the more secluded areas. He came across other teens. A few crickets... But no Kenneth. Approaching the open space where concrete picnic tables and barbecue stood, he noticed a lone orange Pinto parked there, with the Waxahachie High School sticker on its back window. Raylene's car. He breathed a sigh of relief, seeing something familiar. Whatever it is. At least Kenneth is safe and still inside the car. The car was empty, which could mean they had gone for a walk, or, more dangerously, for a dip in the lake. For the next hour, he roamed the streets of Waco, searching every park, every nook he came across, until he finally arrived back at Midway Park. There, he stumbled upon an abandoned car that had clearly been vandalized, with shattered windows and open doors. He reported the car on his citizens band radio, to alert the police, and waited until they arrived. When they did, he told them why he was out so late at night in the first place. He couldn't find his son. He was supposed to be home. The car is still here, but there is no sign of him. The officer listened attentively and took down his information, before promising to keep in touch If he found any leads. As the sun began to rise, Richard returned to Coney Park, hopeful that the kids had come back from wherever they had ventured off to. Parking next to the Orange Pinto, he approached the car and found the passenger door surprisingly unlocked. He went into the car, hoping for the smallest clue in the small space between the seat and backrest, he found a keychain. Kenneth's keychain. Something was terribly wrong. While Richard combed through Waco and all of its parks, frantically searching for his son and the girls, two men were on a boat, enjoying the peaceful serenity of the lake and unwinding with a much-deserved fishing trip. As the sun came up, Joseph Chambers decided he'd had enough, and it was time to head back. Sidney Smith, however, proposed they grab a bite to eat and return to a different spot where he'd seen some luck before, and so they did. Chambers and Smith arrived late afternoon at Spiegelville Park. The drive was long, winded, and shadowed. A rough road only ever frequented by fishermen, campers, and young lovers seeking privacy. And Chambers couldn't help but feel they were lost. As they reached the end of the road, they saw the lake in the distance, and breathed a sigh of relief. But not a split second later, the relief turned to horror when Chambers spotted something. A body lying on the ground at an intersection with another dirt road. It was almost dummy-like with outstretched legs propped up against a tree in a sitting position, with sunglasses over its eyes. The two men sat there stunned, unsure of what to do next. Could it be a prank? A cruel, somewhat odd prank? Smith got out of the car to inspect the body. He had never seen a dead body before, but he knew he was looking at one right now. Now in a panic, the men turned the car around. Smith knew the McClellan County Deputy Constable, who worked the night shift at the park as a security guard. For the next few miles, not a single word was spoken between the men. That same morning, Richard Franks made several calls, starting with Raylene's father, Raymond Rice. His day was filled with distressed calls and anxious parents, who all called out of work so they could stay close to the phone for updates. When things weren't going fast enough for Raymond, he decided he needed to move. He called up Jill's mother to ask for a photo of Jill to take to the police station, since he was driving down to Waco to pick up the car. Despite the girls having been friends for ages, Nancy Shaw had never met Raylene's parents and the first-time meeting wasn't exactly under pleasant circumstances. Back in Waco, Richard Franks was doing everything he could to stay on the call, including practically tailing the police. He had already given the policemen all the information he had, including a picture of Kenneth, and told him that Raymond Rice was on his way with a photograph of the girls. The lake was eerily calm, Unfairly so. Going through a roller coaster of emotions inside, Richard almost felt like the world should be afraid and angered with him. The adrenaline which had been pumping through him for so long was finally giving way to overwhelming fatigue. With what little energy he had, he coughed out Something bad has happened to those kids. I know it. Somebody took those kids away from here last night going to find them lying in a ditch somewhere, and in a moment that shocked the officer in charge, he said, their bodies might be over there somewhere right now. With the search party out and no new information, there was nothing else left for Richard to do. It was out of his hands. By the evening, all the parents gathered at Nancy Shaw's home. There wasn't much to talk about but these were the only people that knew what the others were going through. Silently, they managed to choke down a little food and miserably wait by the phone Hours before the police gathered, Constable Thorpe was just preparing to have dinner in front of the TV, when frantic knocking at his cabin door made him groan and get up off his sofa. He was greeted by Joseph Chambers and Sidney Smith, looking bleak. "'What's wrong?' he inquired, his previous irritation replaced by dread. The duo explained to him what they saw and asked him to follow them to the scene of the crime. Thorpe, upon hearing the story, became skeptical. You probably got too much sun, he said. These July heat waves are no joke. The men insisted, and Thorpe, with little sense of urgency, pulled on his cowboy boots and called the sheriff's department to let them know what he'd been told. Smith and Chambers led the way in their truck, and a sick feeling crept up on them as they got closer to the body in the park. Once they arrived, Thorpe realized he had been taking things too lightly. This was no ordinary case. The teenage boy had multiple stab wounds in his chest, and a gag tied over his mouth, with his hands bound behind his back. Suddenly, Thorpe didn't care so much about a relaxed night in, The hot July air was no match for the shivers that ran down his spine, because something told him this wasn't it. Thorpe would need to call in the big guns. Sergeant Truman Simmons, a 17-year veteran of the Waco police and the youngest member of the department to ever make sergeant at the age of 25, as he was pulling out of the parking lot of the Engineering Technological Institute, where his wife worked, he received a phone call. It didn't require much convincing or explaining to let him know it was an extraordinary case. He called for reinforcements and arrived at Spiegelville Park, and he saw the job wasn't going to be easy. Not because the body was particularly vexing, but because, as always the TV reporters were already swarming the area. Fighting his way through them, he crouched down to take a look at the body while his men scoured the area for more clues. Sure enough, another body was found 20 yards away from the first one. It was a blonde girl. She was nude with a piece of red and white cloth tied around her mouth and her bra tied to her ankle. She had been stabbed repeatedly. Not long after, the team saw a knee poke out of the weeds. Hurrying to the site, they found another girl, this one a brunette, also nude, bound and gagged. There was far more blood on her body, as well as stab wounds. One inconsistent detail was that her throat had been cut too. Things didn't quite make sense, though. Why was the boy propped up against a tree, but the girls hidden away? Why were there no signs of struggle on the scene? But those questions could wait, for now. Thorpe and Truman had to clear the area of reporters and make one very difficult, painful phone call. Back at Nancy Shaw's home, the parents sat in wretched silence, desperately waiting for some news. Any news. And it came at 9.30 that night. Nancy, with fear etched on her face, answered the phone and heard a voice from the Waxahachie Police Department identify himself. Ma'am, I'll be at your house in just a few moments. What is it, officer? Have you heard something? Miss Shaw, I'm on my way right now. Expectant eyes looked at Nancy. Nobody could hear the voices of the policemen, but her face said it all. Minutes later, when the police arrived, their fears were confirmed. I'm very sorry, but all three children are deceased. The next morning, citizens of Waco and Waxahachie Woke up to a terrifying headline Man, two teenage girls found stabbed to death at Lake Park. Police say bodies bound, girls nude. These disturbing words were splashed against the entire front page of the newspaper, and local newscasts repeatedly played images and videos of ambulance workers, police officers, and bodies being carried out of the brush. The questions, interviews, and events that would follow would leave the parents of these children shaken to their cores. But there was no way around it. For now, all the people of Waco could do was lock their doors, set curfews for their children, and ask for the park to be shut and locked after dark. The story of Lake Waco is tragic and horrifying, We're going to go deep into the lives of these children and their parents, discover the details of the case as they unfold, and discuss the trials, accusations, and arrests that make this case so complex. As always, thank you for listening.